All right, everybody, good morning. How are we doing? Can't hear me. Yes, you can. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? All right, everybody, welcome. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. Um, if you're watching online, I'm glad you're online. I wish you were here. So um, we are uh, in a series, and I talk a lot about... Um, how we come to this church every week and, and we worship God and we try to understand who God is and we try to see ourselves in perspective of what God wants us to be. And all of us come from different backgrounds and different places, but the beauty of God's word is it's true for every single human that walks in the door uh, and for those that don't. And so every week we try to learn a little bit more about God. We try to surrender a little bit more and that allows us to be changed because what we're discovering in our journey with Christ is that once we surrender to Christ, we begin to change on the inside. Things happen and we don't really understand it fully, but what we know is we're not the same person we used to be and we'd never go back. And we thank God every day for the transformation that's occurred in our lives. Now we're in a series on Revelation and uh, I just want to remind you that there's only one revelation and that's Jesus Christ himself. The entire book is about showing us who Jesus really is. We've talked about how this book is relatively easy to understand if you've read the previous 65 books. That almost nothing in Revelation is new. Things that are presented have been seen before. We're going to see that today. And that's the reason it's that way is it's not by accident in Jewish Hebrew law and in culture, things took an eyewitness of at least two or three. So when we see, for instance, today, we're going to see the throne of God in heaven. We're going to discover in scripture, there are four or five eyewitnesses to that throne. It's not just John. It's Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and others who saw the throne of God. And so they're testifying to the truth. Now this book is, revelation means unveiling. It means to make something clear. It doesn't mean to, to make it confusing or hard. It doesn't mean to make it cryptic or mysterious. In the Bible, it talks about how we're gonna learn what was, what is, and what is to come. Last week, we finished the seven letters to the seven churches, what is. We've learned what was, and now God is going to begin to turn us to show us what is to come. He's going to reveal to us the future. Revelation 1.19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Now, a couple things are very interesting here. I spent three weeks talking about the rapture of the church. Uh, and you can go back and watch that online. You can listen to it on the podcast. Um, but what's interesting is from this point forward, the church is not mentioned again until chapter 19. Okay, so the church, or we just had letters to seven churches. We see uh, God talking about the churches and then there's silence from here all the way to chapter 19. And if you go back and look at the series I did or the sermons I did on the rapture, I believe that's because we have been raptured at this point. We'll continue and talk about other things, but now we're moving into future events. 
And in chapter 4, John is going to be given a glimpse into heaven. And we say that and we go, okay, cool. No, he's going to get a glimpse into heaven. He woke up that morning, I think, probably had some breakfast, probably thought it was a day like any other day. He goes to pray, and the next thing he knows, he is transported into a vision of the throne of God that he can't even find words to describe. The very first thing that Jesus wants to reveal to John is the throne of God. And I'm almost certain John stood there going, whoa, 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 whoa. You want me to describe this in words that humans can understand? I don't even get it. It's important to see that John is seeing is just a representation of God on his throne. He's showing himself in a way that John can understand. He's revealing himself. And that, that revelation is too much for John. His words, he, when you read his writings, he's searching for the right words to try to describe what he sees. When we go through this, we're going to see that both he, Daniel, and others were just trying to find some kind of human word to describe something that is so supernatural that words have never been used to describe it because this is the first time it's been seen. He seems to be struggling to capture what he's experiencing. We're going to join John in his wonder and his amazement at God. So let's dive in and see what God has for us today. Revelation 4.1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven! Exclamation point. Do you know how many exclamation points are in the Bible? I don't either, but it's not a lot. So when they're there, pay attention. I'll have to look that up. A door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Not what might, not what I've decided. This has to take place. Why does it have to take place? Because God is just. God is righteous. The events of end times are to bring out his justice. It must take place. Now think about how incredible this is for John. Now this isn't the first time though that man has been given a glimpse into heaven. Remember that nothing new is really presented in Revelation. We've seen glimpses of heaven and the throne throughout the other scriptures. For example, in the book of Job, God describes to us what John is now seeing. He says, look, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came with them. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord on the throne in heaven and Satan came with them. That's strange. The angels are going to the throne of God in heaven to present themselves, and Satan is coming? Satan is in heaven? Satan is coming to the throne? What's Satan doing in heaven? But there he is, and he's at the throne all the time accusing the believers. Back to the next verse, God and Satan have a conversation. 
And so in Job, we have a vision here, at least a slight one, of God on the throne in his heaven. Angels presenting themselves to God. Satan comes as the accuser and dialogues with God. Peter told us this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking somebody to devour. What's Satan doing right now? He's trying to figure out how to destroy you. Simple. What's Satan doing tomorrow? He's going to try to figure out how to destroy you. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual force, don't miss this, against the spiritual forces of evil, where? In heavenly places. Evil in heavenly places before the throne. That's where our battle is. That's where the spiritual fight occurs. So we get a glimpse of a place that's not where we are, a place where a lot of activity is going on and has been going on for a long time, and a place where that activity will continue into the future. I want to remind you that everything we're seeing now revealed in Revelation, we're going to see live. See, it's easy to look at this and go, oh, this is just a book. No, this is a photo album of your future. There's a day on our calendar, on your calendar, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you will see this throne and it'll become a normal place of existence for you. This is the throne of God. It's the epicenter of the battle of good and evil. It's God's command com, if you will. Paul says against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Heaven is a very real place with real people who inhabit it. They know very well that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Spiritual battle that has been raging in the spiritual realm. Our battle that we fight today, our spiritual battle that we put on the armor of God and fight is spiritual battle that's originating, occurring in that place, the throne of God. Let me explain it this way. There is a conflict in heaven between the forces of heaven and the forces of evil. And we are brought into that conflict and both suffer and eventually benefit from that conflict, whether we like it or not. Paul is also given a glimpse into heaven 2 Corinthians 2, 1 through 4. I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. In other words, I could boast about what God has done through me, but let me just share with you what he's shown me. I know a man in Christ, that's a way of saying myself without pointing to me, who 14 years ago was caught up to a third heaven. Whether in body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. In other words, I don't know. I was there. Don't know what happened. Don't know if I was physically taken there. My spirit was taken there. I have no idea. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in body or out of the body. I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. In the context of 2 Corinthians, Paul's clearly referring to himself. 
He says, look, I'm not going to boast about myself, but I'm going to boast about a man who's seen heaven. He heard inexpressible things that he's not permitted to talk about. Reminds us of Daniel in many ways. When he saw the events of end times, he fainted away and hit the deck, passed right out. Couldn't sleep, couldn't eat. Imagine a first century man seeing a 21st century destruction of the world. He too has seen things and heard things too inexpressible to tell. In fact, God commands him to seal it up in a scroll. What you've seen can't be revealed yet. Seal it up, Daniel, in a scroll. Because these things are not yet to be known. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. So we have a scroll. A scroll that has been sealed by God until the time of the end. Shortly in Revelation, we'll be opening the scroll to see what's been hidden. We'll unveil what God now wants us to know because we're now in those times. Notice that Daniel and Paul have glimpses into heaven and they saw inexpressible things. Things that they could not describe. And now John in Revelation 4 is going to get a view of heaven and be asked to describe it, to write it down. It's time to show the people what they've been missing. But before we go too far, just know that much of the challenge of understanding the book of Revelation is that the book is describing things that are supernatural. They are beyond this world. They are beyond the words of this world. They are beyond the human ability to fully understand everything they're beyond the emotions that we can express to describe them. But God reveals himself in a way that we can understand. It's a glimpse of a much bigger revelation that one day we will know fully. When we see that John becomes overwhelmed trying to find the right words, he, he's speechless, but he does his best. This is what it's like. You see, we experience the world through our senses, through our taste, our sight, our touch, our smell and sound. I've been thinking about that. Just the idea of birth. I mean, it's bizarre when you think about it, right? So imagine you're in the womb a month or so before you're to be born. Fully developed, conscious person, a life created by God eight months before. You're self-aware. You can feel pain. You can hear sound. You can hear muffled sound, but there's sound there, and it seems to be the same. Inside the womb, it's dark, not a sense of hot or cold. You feel pressure when you push with a foot or a hand. You might be right side up. You might be upside down. You don't know. You're in fluid. You're comfortable being uncomfortable in a limited world, but then catastrophe strikes. All of a sudden, the fluid you're floating in is gone. These horrible things start happening to you. Pressure all around, you're tight, you can't move, you're being pushed, and then all of a sudden you plop out into the world. 
color, sound, people, talking, temperature. No wonder babies cry. It's got to be a horrifying and shocking experience. Your life has been pretty nice up to now, but all of a sudden everything just changed. Because of both of my jobs, I think a lot about death too. I suspect death is similar to that. In human form, we have a very limited perspective of death. Our sight as humans can only see a very limited range of color. Our hearing is only so good compared to a dog. My range of hearing is getting worse and worse every day. Our sense of smell is very limited. Some dogs can identify cancer by smell. You thought CAT scans were the most important. Maybe dog scans turn out to be important. Dolphins navigate by a sonar sense that we don't even have at all. You see, when we leave this world, we're going to enter a world without limits to see and to smell and to hear and touch things that Paul says are inexpressible. You don't have the words as a human to describe them. That doesn't make them wrong. It doesn't mean they don't exist. It doesn't mean that you don't understand what he's talking about. He doesn't understand what he's talking about. But Jesus said, write it down. So he does. He'll often say things like, well, it's like this. Or it has the appearance of this. Or it looks sort of like this. Or it seems to do this. Or it's something like this. He uses simile. He uses metaphors and imagery from other parts of the Bible. And anything else he can think of to try to share with you and me what he's seeing. He's so limited by human experience and words that it's like we're reading in a two-dimensional black and white when he's seeing 3D and in high-def color. That's why Revelation leaves us asking for more information or a better description. That's the gap we have to accept between what John says and what John actually sees. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. Now remember, Paul said he's not sure if he's in the Spirit or not. John knows he's in the Spirit. His body is not taken to heaven. This is a spiritual vision, and he seems to know that. throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald this throne is what first impressed john it's the centerpiece of what he's seeing in this vision he's fixated not on the throne itself but on who occupies the throne and everything else is described in relation to this throne you see, the bottom line of atheism or materialism is there is no throne. There is no seat of authority. There's no power that the entire universe has to answer to. The bottom line of humanism is that there is a throne, but we put ourselves on it. And we answer only to ourselves. But this throne, this throne in heaven is not empty. 
there's someone who sits on this great heavenly throne. It's a powerful declaration of God's, not just his presence, but his sovereign, rightful reign and his prerogative to judge. He is God. He is on his throne. And it doesn't matter what you think about it. You see, we can't think correctly about much of anything until we start settling in our mind that right now there is a throne in heaven that is occupied by a very real God. And the God of the Bible rules from that throne today and tomorrow and the day after. At the center of everything in Revelation, from this point forward, there's one thing you have to know. There is a throne in heaven and it's already occupied and you're not on it. This person, this thing that is on the throne is hard to describe. He has the appearance of Jasper or Carnelian. He's not made of those things, but that's what John is reminded of when he sees them. You see, a throne says this. A throne says, I can do whatever I want because I rule. That's what a throne says. A promise says, I will fulfill this word to you and I can't do otherwise. A rainbow around the throne is a remarkable thing. Showing that God will always limit himself by his own promises. Yes, I'm on the throne. Yes, I'm all powerful. Yes, I can do anything. But by the way, my word is true too. And I'm limited in my character, my justice to do what I've promised to do. The rainbow, the first sign of God's promise to man. Now being used for other non-godly purposes. But this rainbow around the throne is remarkable. He says it resembled an emerald and it encircled the throne. Rainbows have seven colors, the number of perfection. But this one represented one color, emerald. It's greenish, seems like a rainbow, yet it encircled the throne. It's more like a three-dimensional dome that's around and over the throne. You see, John can't just figure out what to say. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with gold crowns on their heads. He sees 24 other thrones, other 24 elders. We mentioned this before when we talked about the pre-trib rapture. These are the elders of the church dressed in white with crowns on their heads. Crowns, given, crowns were given to humans. These are 24 elders of the raptured church. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. The lightning, the thunder, the voices, the fire are reminiscence of God's fearful presence at Mount Sinai. Remember when God descended on Mount Sinai, those same things happened. They surround the, the presence and power of God. The lamps are important because the Holy Spirit is not ordinarily visible. 
To become visible, he often represents himself in physical form like a dove or tongues of fire. Picture this image he sees. There's a throne with a figure on it. He can't quite make out the figure, but there are colors emanating from him like carnelian and jasper. He's blurry. He's shrouded in a mist. There's a three-dimensional rainbow over this dome. and It's kind of greenish in color. And it reminds me of an emerald. There's 24 of these elders and they're dressed in white. They have their own thrones and they have crowns on their heads. From this throne came flashes of light and lightning. Not, not bolts, but bright light like it's flashing. All from within this emerald kind of dome. There's rumblings, there's peals of thunder. John is seeing an incredible thing. It's magnificent and it's terrifying at the same time. Also in front of the throne, there's an area that looks like a sea of glass, as clear as crystal. It's not a pool, it's a sea of glass. Like as far as you can see, it moves like water, yet you can see through it all the way. It has dimension, but it's like a liquid. It's kind of moving. It's clear as though it looks like crystal, like looking through liquid air. You can see how John is struggling to find the words. Then he continues. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. Full of eyes in the front and behind. The first living creature is like a lion. The second creature is like an ox. The third creature is the face of a man. And the fourth living creature is like an eagle in flight. We've actually seen this before. Remember I said very few things are new in Revelation? We've seen this exact picture before. Ezekiel 1.1, in the 30th year. In the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, I was among the exiles by the Kibar cam channel and heavens were open and I saw visions of God. Ezekiel says, look, we're in captivity. I'm down by the river in Babylon on a specific day. And he makes it very specific. I'm down there praying and all of a sudden I see heaven. And as I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness all around it and fire flashing forth continually in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. Doesn't this start to sound like what John is trying to describe? John describes color emanating from the throne. Ezekiel calls it gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. There they are, four living creatures. The same ones John sees in Revelation. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left, the fourth had a face of an eagle. He's describing the same throne that John is seeing in Revelation. The difference is he's using Ezekiel's words to try to describe what he sees, and John uses John's words but it becomes obvious they're looking at the same thing. These are two different eyewitnesses of the same throne. John is seeing these creatures from straight on. It looks like from Ezekiel's standpoint, they're moving. He sees the faces of a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle, just like John describes. But as they move, he realizes that each of them have four faces. John gets a two-dimensional static look at these creatures. Ezekiel seems to see them in 3D and they're moving. 
Ezekiel 1.5, and from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs are straight, the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings and on the four sides they had human hands, and the four had faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another, each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. Such were their faces, and the wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings. Each of them touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward. Where the spirit would go, they went without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of flashes of lightning. He's describing the throne. Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside each living creature, one for each of the four of them. Hovercrafts, I guess. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like gleaming of barrel. And the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went out on four directions without turning as they went. And their rims were tall and awesome, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went with them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went. And the wheels rose among them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, they went, and when they stood, they stood, and when they rose from the earth, the wheels rose among them, and the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Imagine, he's trying to find some kind of words. There's these wheels, and they're spinning, and there's this stuff, and it's crazy. Now, John doesn't look at these wheels spinning and people moving, because again, he's seeing almost like a snapshot, a stationary 2D image. Whereas Ezekiel seems to be seeing it in 3D. He's watching a video. With Ezekiel, the entire scene is moving and rotating as it approaches him like a storm. Wasn't just those two. Isaiah. Isaiah 6.1. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah tries to describe what he sees, the, the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. His robes fill the temple, above him creatures with wings. They call out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The foundation is shaking under the sound of the voice. The whole house is full of mist or smoke. So they're all looking at the same thing. Back to Revelation. Revelation 4, 8. And the four living creatures each of them with six wings and full eyes all around. Remember the wheels had eyes all around. 
And within, day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down for him in front of whom seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne. Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by you they existed and were created. They're all looking at the throne. From comparison with Ezekiel, we understand these creatures are cherubims, spectacular angelic beings surrounding the throne of God. Satan was actually one of those years back. We learned that from Ezekiel 28. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from that day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. And then he goes on to describe the fall of Satan. In Hebrew, whenever a word is replicated twice, it's to add emphasis. Rarely it's replicated three times to designate supernatural emphasis. Holy, holy, holy. What a picture. <laughs> Seeing the throne of God and trying to reveal it to us. He continues, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. We've seen that scroll. So John sees him who's seated on the throne, Father God, and in his right hand is a scroll that is sealed with seven seals, completely sealed, the number seven, full of completeness. What scroll could this be? Well, remember Daniel 12. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who's been in charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen. There was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those will turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. If you want to describe our world, many are running to and fro, and knowledge is increasing. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O oh Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. In other words, Daniel, you're not allowed to know. Daniel, God says, I've given you all the information you can handle. So I'm rolling up the scroll and I'm sealing it until the end times. But you go your way till the end and you shall rest and stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Daniel's scroll that he read with writing on both sides that made him faint, that made him sick, that made him unable to eat, that scared the bejeebers out of him. And now John sees that scroll in the right hand of the one who's on the throne of God. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? 
No one in heaven on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. In other words, this scroll can't be opened until the price is paid for what it contains. This scroll can't be opened until the Savior has died on the cross, resurrected, and paid the price for what's revealed in the scrolls. The only one who could open the scroll is the one who paid the price. They're asking who could open the scroll as an introduction to the second person of the Trinity, and John begins crying because it's obvious the scroll is important and it needs to be opened. To look upon the scroll, one must have the right to open the scroll, possess it, and know what's in it. And no creature was found worthy of that. There's no answer to the angel's challenge because creation is incapable of affecting its own destiny. In other words, nothing that's been created can determine the destiny of creation. Only God can do that. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Think about what he's saying. Only the one that paid the price can open the scroll. Only the one that paid the price can bring the end times forward. Only the one that paid the price can bring justice to the world and set things right again. And weep no more because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered. What do you think he's going to see next? Think about that for a minute. What's he going to see? The lion of the tribe of Judah, right? He looks up and he expects to see a lion. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. Lamb, standing. Looks like it's been slain. Seven horns and seven eyes. Seven horns representing full power, seven eyes representing full vision and justice. Which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. This slain lamb has brought the spirit of God forward in all the earth. See, John expected to see a lion, but he's looking at a lamb. And the word he uses is a little lamb, like Mary's, a little lamb, delicate lamb. The lamb is presented in a way that is sympathetic and powerful. He's living, he stood a lamb, but he still has the marks of previous sacrifice on him as though he's been slain. In other words, he's the Lamb of God. He's been slain, but he's alive. He's been slain, but he's standing. He's not dead. It's hard to describe what John sees, but it has the marks of sacrifice on it. And we're going to see the coming judgment that begins in chapter 6 is dictated and administered by the Lamb who's already offered an escape from the judgment by taking the judgment himself. The judgment will come upon a world that hates the Lamb and all he stands for and rejects his offer of salvation. This idea that the sacrifice of Jesus is still fresh and current before God the Father on the throne 
You see, it's not like the work of Jesus became stale and outdated and something that happened a long time ago. It's forever in the presence of the throne. The sacrifice of the Lamb, greatest event in human history, is always before the throne. It's there right now. It'll be there when we get there. Thousands of years later, that sacrifice will be just as fresh as the day when he died on the cross. Even though he has marks of his sacrifice, the lamb was not presented as an object of pity. He also bore the image of omnipotence, knowing everything. He has seven horns and omniscience, seven eyes, all powerful, all seeing. A slain lamb who has omniscience and omnipotence. Throughout scripture, eyes suggest knowledge and wisdom and horns suggest power. This lamb has knowledge, wisdom, and power perfectly. Seven horns, seven eyes. This image that John's been seeing on the throne that he can't quite make out, that looks like carnelian and jasper. Ezekiel says it looks like a, a metal shining. It seems to be morphing in some way. This image seems to be morphing into a slain lamb and within it, seven spirits of God and the totality of God is there. What John's describing to us is the Trinity present at the throne of God. God all at one time on the throne as the lamb, as the spirit. John is trying to put into words what he's trying to see God as a Trinitarian being. There's this emerald dome, and within it is God, and he's got, he, he morphs from one to the next to the next. He's always all three, but he's moving in between. He sees the Father morphing into the Lamb, morphing into the Spirit all at the same time. It's not sequential. It's happening all at once. He can see three persons at once, all equally present, individually, and yet one. Don't miss how incredible this is. How hard it must be to put this into words. John's seeing the throne of God and he's seeing the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and they're all morphing together. They're all three in one. And the fullness of the Spirit, the seven spirits have been sent out to the earth. Remember, the risen Christ said he would send us the Holy Spirit. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who's seated on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Where are your prayers? In the golden bowl of incense at the foot of the throne of God. Next time you pray and make your request known to God, don't forget where your prayers are. This throne, God in the Trinity, 24 elders, four living creatures, the prayers of the saints filling the bowls as incense and each elder's holding an instrument that looks like a harp. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. By your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. This song is about us. They're singing a song that John's never heard before. We sing a song, a song like this all the time. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Holy is He. Sing a new song to Him who sits on heaven's mercy seat. 
You see, the image here is on his redemption. The song honors the price of redemption. You were slain. It honors the worker of redemption. You redeemed us. We didn't do it. You did it. It honors the destination of redemption. You have redeemed us to God. It honors the payment of of redemption by your blood. The song honors the scope of redemption. It's for every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. The song honors the length of, of redemption. You have made us kings and priests to our God. And the song honors the result of redemption. We shall reign on the earth. John continues, Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. It's as if John is seeing this endless stadium or theater as far as you can see, full of angels, a number too great to count, and they're all singing this song. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Imagine that scene. It gets even better. It does. And I heard every creature in heaven and under earth and in the sea. And think about that. Every creature in the sea. Saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Do you remember when Jesus said, if you don't worship me, the stones will cry out? All of creation, every bit of creation, surrendering to him who sits on the throne and the lamb be the blessing forever. What a scene. All of creation, every creature in heaven, earth, under the sea, shouting out, singing praises to the lamb. It's a day in our future. John is trying to stretch his language and experience to describe something that's beyond it. He also talks about the sounds of heaven. Have you ever thought about that? I think about the sounds of heaven a lot because I would like to hear everything. We often think of heaven as a peaceful place, like walking through a meadow on a beautiful day. Plenty of sunshine coming my way. It's actual. In fact, everything is satisfactory. Yet in John's vision, there's a lot of noise. Four living creatures crying, holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They sing this day and night and they never stop. The 24 elders, they are singing. Countless angels proclaiming the praises of God. All living creatures praising God. It's incredible. So a throne is a special seat reserved for a monarch. And the Bible speeches, speaks of thrones. The emphasis is always on God's dignity and sovereign rule. Throne is a special place. It's not really a literal throne, though. I think it's important to understand when you look at Revelation, God doesn't have a physical body. He doesn't literally sit. References to a divine throne or allusions to God's hand or his mouth or his eyes, they're what we call anthropomorphisms, descriptions of God characterized in human form and terms so we could understand them. God has to describe himself in ways we can understand. 
Isaiah says he sees the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. We can't really take that totally literally. Rather, God's communicating to Isaiah the magnificent splendor and exaltation of this being. His throne, his, fill, his robe, everything about him fills the temple. It's a place of power and authority. In 2 Chronicles, the prophet Micah just relates his vision of God's throne room where spirits stand in attendance. God's throne is a place of majesty and honor. The Bible says that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There's no higher place than heaven and no higher place of honor than the throne of God. It's a place of perfect justice. The throne is a place of perfect justice. Psalmist says he has prepared his throne for judgment. The final judgment described in Revelation 20 is held before the great white throne. The throne is also a place of sovereignty and holiness. Psalmist said God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. He does whatever he pleases and all that he pleases is good. Throne is also a place of praise. John includes that new song to one who occupies the throne. It's a place of purity. Only the redeemed, only those who have been granted righteousness of Christ have the right to stand before his throne. Throne is a place of eternal life. John sees the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. We'll see that in Revelation 22. But here's what I want you to know. God's throne is a place of grace. Not only does the throne of God represent judgment for the unbeliever, but it also represents mercy and grace for his children. Hebrews 4, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, this isn't an unapproachable throne. For God's children, they can run up and sit in his lap, look for mercy. Inside the Jewish temple was the Ark of the Covenant, which was a copy of the true, they say in Hebrews, and it had a seat that they called the mercy seat, where God's presence would appear one day all of creation is going to bow to the majesty of this throne. There's not a single person who's ever been born who's not going to see this throne. The beings around the throne will lay their crowns before the throne and say, you're worthy, God, we're not. So the first thing that God wants to reveal to John is this throne. He wants to make sure that before telling him what is to come, that John knows one thing that is never changing. God is on his throne. Nothing he's about to reveal occurs beyond his authority and his power. Nothing you read in Revelation is beyond his control. He is on his throne. He is carrying out what must happen. So while God is on his throne, the question for us to think about today is this. Is he on the throne of your life? Many of us have placed ourselves or our money 
or something else on the throne of our lives. We're worshiping little g-gods, in many ways worshiping ourselves. God is on his throne right where he belongs. Some recognize him as high and lifted up. Others face what he's about to describe, what is to come. Don't leave today until you know who occupies the throne that is over your life. God is on his throne right now, regardless of what you think about it. On a day in our future, on the calendar, everyone will bow to God on the throne, every person. Some will be a familiar experience. I've bowed to God on this throne before. I've been bowing every day since I surrendered to Christ, but for others, it will be the first time they've bowed and their tongues will confess that Jesus is Lord. And sadly, it will also be the last time they bow before this throne. We have to understand the throne of God if we want to understand what happens after this. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you wanted to make sure we were not confused or not blinded by truth. Thank you, God, that you can't be described with human words. You're too, mad, too majestic, too wonderful, too overwhelming for mere humans to even try to describe. But thank you, God, for writing it. Thank you, God, for giving us a glimpse that we could understand. Thank you for letting us think about your throne and where you've been since always and where you will always be. You're in total control, total power. You know everything and you're bringing out your will on earth. Thank you, God, for showing us what that is. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before they come up and do announcements, I want to talk a little bit about um, something that I really don't like talking about, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. Um, you know, I talk a lot about this church, and I talk about how the church is not this building, it's you, right? I mean... This building is only effective if it's a tool for ministry. Okay, we don't spend a lot of money on our building. Well, we do spend a lot of money on our building, but we spend it because it's the tool that allows us to reach your friends, your family, and people none of us have met yet for Jesus. Now, before I talk, I'm going to let you guys know that me, Tammy, Natalie, Daniel, our entire worship team, our care team, our children's ministry are all volunteers. None of us get a penny. As soon as pastors start talking about money, people start going, oh, there he goes again, trying to raise his salary. No, never been paid by this church. Now, we don't have any debt as a church. Praise God. But we do suffer inflation like everybody else. I want to share with you a couple things that are on our horizon that we have to do as a church. And mainly so you can pray about it, and mainly so that if you're not giving to this church that you would, because it's easy to take for granted that we'll be here. Okay, we need a new roof. Conservative estimates are it's gonna cost $100,000. Okay, if the roof doesn't get replaced in the future, at some point, we don't get insurance. Uh, if we don't have insurance, it's okay. Just if something happens to the building, we're done as far as buildings go. We've raised 50,000 of it. That's the good news. Our leaders, our elders, our staff, we've been putting aside money. We've had direct gifts given. 
We've raised a lot of it, but that's one of the things that's on our immediate horizon. About two weeks ago, our, all of our electrical panels went out. They're a fire hazard. We had no power anywhere in the building, and we had to spend $15,000 to redo all of the electrical panels. Again, critical for ministry. We have a young adult group that is wanting to hold a service here uh, and begin a service for young adults that can come from all over the community to this place and worship. And crazily, they want me to teach them. Do you know why we're not doing that yet? We need $7,500. Why? Because in order for the young adults to blow out the sound, we're gonna blow out speakers, okay? Some of these speakers up here are over 40 years old, okay? So we're in the process of planning ministries. We have 21 air conditioning units in this building. We've replaced 16 of them at a cost of over $100,000. We have five left. Fortunately, we don't have children in the back room because we don't have an air conditioner back there. We're rotating air conditioners, if that gives you an idea. We need the parking lot redone. You probably noticed that on your way in. That's going to be about 30000 We have missionaries to support around the world, and they're top of the list. I don't bring this up to go, oh, my gosh, the, the sky's falling. I believe that on the web and in this room, God is going to provide through us and not to us. Does that make sense? If this is your church home, we need you to give. Now, you can look at it and go, you know what? Those guys don't have any, so they must not cost anything to run this place. Well, it's over 10000 a month. Okay, and so I'm bringing this up so you'll know. Uh, please hear my heart. Scriptures suggest to us that the first 10% of everything we receive, our first fruit, should go to God and his mission. Jesus said, if you, where your money goes, your heart goes. Where your money goes, your heart goes. So I'm just going to say this. If you want to know who's on the throne of your life, look at your checkbook. Look at your balance. Look at your bank statement. Where's your money going? Because that's where your heart's going. Whatever you invest in, your heart moves there. We have an incredible church. Okay, now we don't spend money on things that aren't reasonable. Everything we spend money on, our first question is, will this allow us to share the word of God more effectively to more people? Okay? We have a sound system that we need to redo in addition to the kids and the sound to avoid feedback in this room. We have a lot of problems with feedback. Let me just give you an example of what we've done in the last three years, uh, just so you get an idea. Uh, we have uh, spent more than $100,000 on air conditioning. We've replaced our electrical panels. We've paid off some taxes that were due. We connected to the sewer and plumbing, which is 20,000 if I remember right. We set up alarm systems, we put in cameras, we put outdoor lights out so people could be more safe. We did a redo of the sound. We've upgraded our web, we've increased our live stream, we've invested in some computer systems and backup, and every room in this building has been upgraded, but not perfected, okay? In other words, we're keeping this carpet because it would be ridiculous to spend money to do it when we have other needs. And I never know anybody that says, well, I was going to accept Christ, but I bowed down on the carpet and it was orange. <laughs> so we're not doing that, okay? Um, so I think that's important. First, I'm going to ask you to pray. Second, uh, God has never, ever not provided for this church, ever. Okay, we're not trying to do crazy things. We're not trying to do too much. Give you a comparison. 
Another church in our community is spending 10 times this amount and probably more so their pastor can appear as a hologram to their congregation. Okay. We're not asking for that kind of stuff. We're simply asking to take care of God's building so we can continue to do the ministries we do. Okay? So if you'll pray about that, I would really appreciate it.